we were really trying to do it all. And we were trying to expand into other cities and do the same thing. And then we realized we didn't have the connections. And I was getting frustrated. I was like, we were growing, but it's like, we could be growing better. So slowly but surely ended up developing one of my main projects that we're working on now. It's called the Ross Building. It's in downtown Salisbury. Welcome to the Apartment Investing Journey, where we explore every facet of multifamily investing and development with top investors, brokers, and service providers who share their strategies, successes, and secrets to help you on your apartment investing journey. Hey guys, David Robinson here. Welcome to the Apartment Investing Journey. We've got another great episode for you today. I'm excited to have uh, Nick Simpson on the show with me. Nick, welcome to the show. I appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me, David. Yeah. So Nick has a tremendous amount of experience uh, in the multifamily and development space. He's the founder and CEO of Mentis Capital Partners, and he's focused on multifamily and student housing developments throughout the Southeast. And so Nick, uh, obviously very, very brief bio. You have a tremendous amount of experience and uh, have uh, built up a significant portfolio. And we want to get the whole journey. We want to try to glean some insights from your experience and your journey that you've been on and apply that to help us fast track our own journey. And so if you don't mind, let's back up and let's talk a little bit about that. When did this all start for you? About 10 years ago, I was in college and I always knew I wanted to get into something. Uh, I wanted to start my own business. I didn't know exactly what it would be. And I picked up Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I think I read it in one day. And I pretty much made up my mind on the spot I was going to buy some type of real estate. So I went out and bought a $70,000 house. It was a $35,000 foreclosure. I should take that back. It was a $70,000 deal. $35,000 $35,000 foreclosure, and the rest of it was in repairs, most of which I did myself with friends and family. Uh, we did get a little bit of contracting work in there, but it was the lion's share of it was done by us. Get, got that sweat equity from the very beginning. And it carried forward uh, one by one. One house turned into two, then five, then 10, and I got into commercial, and then I eventually got into multifamily. And it, it took one step at a time, but eventually got into these uh, larger developments, some now that are uh, tens of millions of dollars. And it really is um, starting to you know, continue to snowball upwards. So it is not attain- it, it's completely attainable by anybody. It just, as long as you're willing to start in, you know, from humble beginnings and uh, plenty of pitfalls I've, I've made along the way that I'd be happy to talk about avoiding. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's unpack some of that a little bit. Sure. We glossed over, you know, virtually a decade of experience, and so sure. we're we're going to take you back to a few of those uh, main points. Uh, first off, here you are, a student in school, two thousand, roughly two thousand eleven, two thousand ten, two thousand eleven, yep. about then. Okay, you read the purple book, and it sets you on this path of investing in real estate. You start out in the single family space and build up a portfolio that way. How long would you say you were investing in single family before you transitioned into commercial real estate? Two years. Okay. Yeah, it was about two years. Now, back then, single family houses were a deal. It, coming out of the recession, there was a lot to be picked, you know, a lot to pick from. And there was certainly not multiple offer situations or uh, over asking price uh, going on at that time. And I could be quite selective and I was 
actually kind of going against what the trend was. I mean, people weren't really buying houses at the time, or um, I actually got into new home construction at that time. And it was like one of the first permits that was like pulled in, in our city uh, after, after the recession. So it was like, it was definitely something that was against the norm, but I felt as long as I could protect the downside and have steady cash flow from the rent, uh, you know, kind of cover everything. And of course we wanted to make a return. I felt like even if my rents were a little bit lower, if I, uh, you know, had to spend a little bit more on the project, I felt like we would still be in a decent shape. It turned out uh, we were, we were in really good shape and we were able to rent it for more than I thought. And uh, we had a, a lot that came with the first house. It was a, a non-conforming lot. So I went to the city and I said, can I sell this lot off? And they, they told me no. And I was like, well, mm. I, I really think it, I, I should have that right. And I had my first experience with zoning and, uh, you know, I go in and there's like a, a bunch of people who are probably like in their seventies, like telling me that I can't uh, subdivide <laughs> this lot. But I had, I hired one of the good old boys and uh, he went in there and helped me and we get that approval. And I ended up selling that original lot for more money than I put down on the first house. And that rolled oh, wow. into the second one. And um, then two became five pretty quickly. Uh, I started working with an investor about that time. And then uh, five to 10 went pretty quickly after that. But I, I starkly remember working on that first house going, I, I have no idea how I'm going to be able to scale this with the amount of money I have. And like, I, I, it, mm. but what I can tell you is just putting one foot in front of the other, that your, your doors kind of just continue to open. Yeah. So. Well, and, and here you were, you know, you mentioned going against the grain a little bit and obviously 2011, there's probably no better time in, in your lifetime and mine to be investing in uh, real estate and single family more. in particular. Yeah. yeah. So uh, you built up a, a pretty significant, you know, portfolio in such in a very short period of time, uh, 10, 10 units. Why not continue down that path and, and continue to work in that same space? Uh, what caused you to start to explore commercial real estate? Yeah. Losing the economies of scale. And it became quite clear that we were going to have an operations issue. So I started to study what the other guys who had had 100, 400, 500 single family, 1,000 single family homes under management, what they were doing. What I noticed is they had five and 10 trucks with maintenance guys running around all over in different directions, crisscrossing, and they didn't have great reviews from people because it, really the, the ownership and the managers weren't getting to the properties because there was just too many of them. Mm. And about that time, uh, I bought a five unit that was a complete gut rehab. It had a fire in it. So the, the entire thing was, it had to be completely put back brand new. So I, I took this building and converted it into five units. And when I got done, that light bulb moment went on. I was like, this makes sense. I was like, this mm. is easy. So what if one of the units is vacant? I'm like, and I start to think about it at the scale. And I'm like, oh, I could, I could easily do this. You know, you have one roof, you have one set of gardens, you have uh, one place to go visit, to go touch, you know, make sure all the tenants are, are okay. It, it one parking lot, the whole thing just, uh, just started to be that aha moment. Yeah. And I can understand where some people might feel it might be unobtainable in the beginning, unless maybe you partner with people, which is always a good option. But there is the, of course, the option to transition from exactly what I did from housing to, to multifamily. And what I ended up doing was selling all my single family houses and 
1031 them into the bigger projects and slowly but surely bigger, bigger, bigger. Yeah. Love it. Okay. So you have that light bulb moment go off after you acquired the, the five unit. It sounds like it was a pretty uh, heavy, heavy lift, gut rehab, fire units and all. Sure. But those type of returns are, you know, you can do heavy, heavy gut rehab, stuff like that, but you expect the returns to be much higher than your 12, 13, 14% IRRs. You're really looking for substantial returns. And in that case, we ended up nearly doubling our money in two years. So it was, it was definitely worth it. Yeah. Love it. Okay. So uh, where did you take it from there? You, you bought that five unit, you have this aha moment mm-hmm. and you realize, my goodness, this is a, a better path for me than the single family space. You mentioned, you know, exchanging your single families into commercial multifamily, but how did it progress from there? What was your next step after that five unit light bulb moment? That was going on about the same time I had uh, also commercial real estate, like, you know, like office space and like strip centers. And uh, we were buying a lot of buildings in the downtown area and uh, they were, you know, Main Street was coming back and we were converting a lot of those into mixed use buildings. And it just had a lot going on. And I felt like there was a lot of inefficiencies. Uh, we also had like an in-house construction team and we were really trying to do it all. And we were trying to expand into other cities and do the same thing. And then it realized we didn't have the connections. And I just, I was getting frustrated. I was like, we were growing, but it's like, we're, we could be growing better and we could have more profit at the end of the day. And really, what are we doing if we're not seeking some kind of profit here? So slowly but surely ended up developing one of my main projects that, that we're working on now. It's called the Ross Building. It's in downtown Salisbury. And I ended up acquiring three separate parcels. And we ended up tearing down the old buildings. We had to move 17 tenants. And uh, it's going to be a ground of development of a 14-story high-rise and a seven-story high-rise that'll house 101 units and 358 students for Salisbury University. So while working on that project, it really... I had the opportunity to reposition and, and refocus and take a step back, especially during COVID. We took you know, a couple of steps back to really uh, kind of realign and take a lot of steps forward very quickly and in a much better direction. So I wish I had gone directly from one or two single family houses. And I hope the person listening to this actually does just what I'm telling them or what I should have done. I should have gone directly from one house into maybe a mid-sized multifamily into even larger multifamily and just continue that journey, building up the relationships in that space, the banking, the property management, you name it, just really getting getting focused in my one core competency. I wish I'd done it earlier, but we figured it out the long way and uh, I couldn't be happier that we did. Yeah. Well, you alluded to the Ross building. Let's dig into that deal and talk about uh, some of the details. If you don't mind, let's start at the beginning. How did you source the deal? So I did 1031 selling uh, probably five of the houses at once and I needed to place the money and had 45 days to do it. And at that time, my world was still pretty much Salisbury, Maryland. And I was still thinking only Salisbury instead of throughout the Southeast. Uh, And we were pretty active in downtown. So it made sense. I knew where, you know, where I was. And if I had to move quickly, I felt like at least I had a calculated guess of what would work. And so I ended up acquiring uh, one building and got owner financing on it pretty quickly, just you know because he kind of had new, known our relationship. It gave us a good interest rate, and uh, we ended up closing on the building. And I have always wanted to build a skyscraper. That's it's really the dream is to build okay. multifamily skyscrapers. And 
I, I was thinking, you know, maybe I could add a floor or two to this building, you know, maybe, maybe work on going up. Well, one building became two buildings and I'm getting, you know, approvals from the city and, and my attorney's going through all of these, you know, different, you know, I mean, these are not light approvals either. This is like many, many boards and lots and lots of uh, effort ahead of time. Mm-hmm. And I still remember the day I called him. I'm like, yeah, I bought a third building. We're going to have to do this all over again. And I'm adding a second building to it. And it wasn't just because it wasn't an arbitrary decision. What I had learned while putting this project together was size matters and economies of scale really do matter. And to have on-site property management that's not going to kill your returns and be able to give a really good amenity package that doesn't hurt the construction numbers and to have the ability to hire quality uh, project managers and uh, really just make the project what it should be, you need to have some level of scale. So I ended up buying the old Chamber of Commerce building, which was right next to the the building. I tore down all three, and now we have a 14-story high-rise and a seven-story high-rise right next to each other that'll be connected with a walking bridge and it'll have rooftop decks and it'll have uh, on-site gym and study rooms and uh, common areas. And the property manager can have their own office now and they can, they'll actually have their own unit. They can live there and be really close and uh, make sure that our project is being, you know, being watched and monitored the way it should be. Uh, and all of that, again, I wish I had known for the scale uh, side of it from the beginning that it would be nice to have some scale behind of it, but we kind of walked our way into it. And I think really the biggest stumble on that was COVID. And we were really up and going and we had everything in place, ready to close on financing. And, and then the world shot, you know, stopped. And, you know, one of the most painful things I think so far in my career has been, wow, I, uh, I thought we were, we were about to hum on every level. I mean, all the divisions were about to do really well. And now we're facing fire on, on each front. And while you have, you know, you have some reserves and stuff. I, I just, I did not foresee that level of trauma hitting the system. Uh, it, you know, I was trying to watch like the savings, you know, be a student in history, watch the savings and loan crisis, watch our financial bubble. And I thought we were in pretty good financial strength, but pandemics was not one that I had read about in all, all those business books. So uh, to, to sum it let up. Me, let me pause you right there. Cause I, I want to bring a little bit of context to it. So when you acquired that first site or that first parcel, give us an idea of that time frame. So we acquired the first parcel in, I think it was early, or I think it was late 2018 rather. Okay. And then uh, it took us three years to get started. And yeah. so that was acquiring three separate buildings. That was moving 17 tenants. That's getting architectural drawings done. That's getting a guaranteed maximum price in place. That's And just again, uh, the first parcel acquired late 2018, you end up buying two other parcels with buildings on them that you had to tear down. So did you close on the first parcel and you were just holding that while you continue to develop out this you know, concept? So the buildings had uh, commercial tenants like uh, attorneys mm-hmm. and you know, psychiatrists and it was a lot of attorneys, actually. It was a lot of attorneys. And um, so I, I had them leased out while I was mm. developing the, the project. So I wasn't... Gotcha. The carrying costs weren't too heavy. But the time came to make a decision, okay, time to move all these people out, tear the buildings down, yeah. and move forward with the project. That's when COVID hit. Mm. 
Oh, after the yeah. project, we had already acquired everything <laughs> and everybody's moved out. So there was nothing to carry it. I mean, we're just, you know, throwing money out the, the window wow. each month during COVID. And it was, yeah. it was pretty painful. So, yeah, I can uh, imagine. So when you acquired that first parcel and I, I hate to keep going back, I just want to get sure. the full picture here. But when you acquired that first parcel, what was your plan at that point in time? Now, obviously, the scale of the development increased dramatically over the next, you know, 18, 24 months. What was the plan originally? I was going to keep the first floor retail and make the second, third, and fourth, potentially fifth floor, add a fifth floor and, and change those to apartments. I probably yeah. would have done pretty, pretty well with it. We probably would have been a pretty su- successful project that would have been probably in the books and, and done by now. It's just not how I think. I, I don't yeah. know what it is. I always want to go bigger. I've always wanted well, to go bigger. Well, you had this skyscraper in your mind, man. That's uh, that's what you were looking to do. It was a dream. Yeah. Yep. That's so, cool. To give you an idea, in our area, that the tallest building is seven stories. So this 14-story building is like really going to yeah. you know, raise the bar. So I, I wasn't like looking at other skyscrapers going, oh, I want to do that. I was, I, you're right. It was really imprinted in my mind. I had to really yeah. go against the trend. That's cool. So, well, and, and, you know, you make it sound like, oh, I just went and bought the other two parcels. Like that, that doesn't uh, happen very easily, right? The timing has to be right. The owners have to be, the other owners have to be on board. You got to, if you're going and approaching them to acquire, if they're not already selling, then you're paying a premium in many cases. So talk to us a little bit about acquiring those adjacent buildings that allow you to get to the scale that you want to get to. That's a good question. The second building I was talking, it was, we shared an adjacent wall. So I just wanted to go meet my neighbor. And, you know, throughout our conversation, he was like, you know, would you consider buying it? Cause you know, the construction noise. And I was like, maybe, I mean, what are you thinking? And I think at that moment, I was like, you know, this might really help our layout because we were having a little bit mm-hmm. of trouble with the schematic drawings and really trying to get you know, the, the units on each floor. And I was like, if we can make this wider, we might actually be able to make this building a little bit better as far as unit layout is concerned. And so I started running the numbers and I probably overpaid by 50,000 on that, but not terrible in the, in the over, you know, the, in the scale of the project, it was definitely a necessary purchase. Uh, I didn't realize how necessary it was at the time to pull off something that would have been bigger and have real management behind it. So that particular one was a little overpriced, but I think he was on board because he didn't want to be next to a construction site because he had a wealth management company and you know he was willing to take his profits and go. Gotcha. The other one was the Chamber of Commerce, who was eager to see downtown grow. I think it, we paid a fair price there. I don't know if we... I think both of us walked away from the table saying that was fair. It wasn't overpriced or underpriced, but they ultimately helped downtown by putting more heads and beds and, and helping the, the community grow. So I think it was a, a win-win. And at that time I had I had additional 1031s coming. So I knew I had some money to deploy. So I figured staying focused on one bigger project and you know really trying to get trying to get this to go. It also kind of became clear while capital raising and I don't for anybody who's raised any amount of capital, it might seem counterintuitive, but if you're really trying to raise bigger checks, these from, from companies like family offices or private equity groups, they don't like writing small checks to people. They, they really want to write some substantial amount and pay attention to a, 
you know, a, a smaller group of investments. They don't want to write 7,000 checks out to a whole bunch of different properties and have a whole mm. nightmare of, of asset management on their hands. They want to pick, you know, 20 or 30 horses to, to pay attention to. And so when I was asking people for a million or $2 million to kind of complete my raise, that was getting shut down quite handsomely. And I didn't have a syndication model built into my business yet. So all of those things are lessons learned where you're like, I really need access to smaller cash and bigger cash. So what ended up happening was we had a marriage between large check writers and small check writers to have $30,000, check writers all the way up to millions and millions. And, and that really kind of was just a, a result of me having to make that happen for our company, which has opened doors into multiple other multifamily uh, yeah. projects throughout the Southeast. I can imagine. I can imagine. Yeah. And so if we were to summarize this, maybe just give us a, a summary of the scope of the deal. Rough estimate. I know that uh, we're going to be a little bit careful on pricing, but just give us a, an idea on from a value perspective or a purchase price perspective, the, the whole project, and then also uh, break down for us how you structured the deal. Sure. So it's an opportunity zone investment. So for uh, investors who have capital gains, this was a really good option. I still think p- investors are sleeping on opportunity zones a little bit. Uh, and I do really think that people who are struggling, to, especially right now, I know a lot of people who are struggling to get 1031 money out the door quick enough, they should really take a look at creating their own fund. They can control their own money. It can be in their own bank account. There's no fees or penalties. If they are unable to deploy the cash this year or next, they can literally just get taxed on it on their following tax return. So really there's no loss in doing it. it except buying yourself some more time. Uh, mm-hmm. So I really think people should be paying attention if they're really struggling to get money out the door. But it was an Opportunity Zone project that had the original acquisition price for the properties was roughly $2.1 million, tore those buildings down. And now the overall development is over 30. And we're looking at around a 15% IRR. Opportunity Zone's give investors roughly a 2 to 3% bump on that because the money can grow tax-free for the 10 years that we hold the property. And there's uh, no depreciation recapture on the end. Uh, so there's a lot of upsides to, to doing the deal. What I structured the deal was we did a 90-10 split. It was not my typical 70-30 split, but we did an 8% preferred return and then a 90-10 after we hit 12.5% return. So pretty heavy on the, on the investor side. Uh, yeah. But we were able to take a little bit of, uh, you know, developer fees and acquisition fees to help offset that a little bit. Sure. And you started to allude to the fact of, you know, the equity raising side of it. How much equity did you end up bringing to the deal? Uh, um, uh, total among you and investors alike? A little over 10. Okay. Yeah. And was there anything unique about how you structured the equity side of things with capital stack? Was it of that 10 million you mentioned bringing family offices or larger investments and others, mm-hmm. is there any uh, priority given to those larger investors? They only get a preferred, ret- their preferred return is paid first. Mm-hmm. That's it. So the largest check writer is just one step above the others, but not in a really unfair way, just saying, hey, if there's really not the ability to pay even just the preferred return, I want mine first. And yeah. just because of the amount of risk that they took. I will say that one thing we learned, and this is a little bit more granular for some of your listeners who have maybe considered doing this, we uh, he had a 1031 and he wanted to deploy the cash through a tenant in common structure. And that's pretty common for a deal where you have 
for people who don't know, the, the 1031 has to keep the same partnership going forward. Right. And in order to do a 1031 with somebody else, you have to do a tenant in common structure. Well, the amount of paperwork that that creates, it, it really does put a little bit of strain on the attorneys and the transaction, but also just really the compliance and making sure that everything is, is above board throughout the duration of the hold. Uh, so that's something for people to consider. If they're, if they're taking maybe smaller dollar amounts, I don't know if I would if I would do this. I would definitely do it again for these larger check writers to just get deals to go forward. But I'm not sure I would, you know, before I thought maybe, oh yeah, 1031 money, we'll set up tenant in common structures, we'll do it. I, I don't think I would do it again. Uh, that was a, a bit a bit more of a, a heavy lift than we expected. Mm. And I think the 1031 is a great option, but in this particular case, I really think the opportunity zone could have been uh, used and it would have been the opportunity zone fund could have been used in, instead of a 1031 and it might've created the same result mm. with a little less headache. Yeah. And, and to your point, generally speaking on syndication structure, 1031 really isn't an option. No. So the way around that is to carve out this tenant in common structure Along with the with the syndication, so right. uh, the tenant in common is one of the partners in the deal. The syndication is the other partner in the deal, and uh, it can add some complexity, as you alluded to, as well as some additional uh, costs with attorneys' fees and structure and paperwork and all that. Right? Do you have, uh, you know, in, in hindsight or moving forward, do you sort of have a threshold of equity that would need to be coming from a ten thirty one exchange to structure it that way moving forward? You know, I'd say probably 50 to 75% of the, the total mm. deal. Mm. And, you know, you, you certainly want to take the long, long view. Like you don't want to turn some of these folks away because you want to be able to work with them on the future projects if they have that kind of, or if the family office or whatever group has that kind of money to move. So I, I think certainly it's worth some of those complexities for those reasons. And it helps your deals move forward because they're bringing so much to the table. But if you're bringing, you know, a percent or two percent, that's when it really starts to become more of a of a burden, and it would be better for you to find a different tax saving vehicle or just pay the taxes and, and yeah. participate. Yeah, makes sense. Okay, yeah. so give us an update on uh, the current status of the deal. Yeah, so we're in construction, and it is. I got to tell you, I feel like a kid watching this thing come out of the ground. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I just got confirmation we're going to use a tower crane on it, and that uh, you know, cool. there's a little little victories for me. I I, I love watching yeah. stuff like that happen. You really, all your hard work gets to actually come out of the ground. Now, if for any uh, people who study like Sam Zell or some of these really you know titans of our industry, uh, he he would really direct us away from development. And I remember in his book he said that the only type of people who do development are the people who love watching it come out of the ground. I know what he means by that. And then the other side of it is you, know, you, you really do have to be careful and make sure that you are putting enough equity down into these deals if you are going to take the risk. Uh, so that it doesn't wipe you out if it, if it does, get, does get held uh, you know, held up. Certainly like we had with COVID, fortunately, I had some, some of the really good partners with me to go through, go through the trenches. So yeah. yeah. Love it. And uh, what's uh, the projected, projected timeline on the deal moving forward? That one... Is going to open in August of 2023, and we are very excited to welcome students in August. That's that'll be the, the timeline. So we do have a bit of a a rigid 
you know, we got a must open on time type of type of situation, but nothing the construction crews can't handle. And I hate to go back, but for those of us that are less familiar with the financing of development deals, maybe sure. help, but just shed some light for us on how that side of things is structured on the debt side. That's a great question. Typically, you're going to do a bridge loan or a construction loan. And the construction loan is going to be slightly higher interest. It will most likely be some level of recourse. Certainly, there's going to be a completion guarantee. Uh, and you're going to have to put down probably at least 25, maybe 30. If you're doing a hotel, probably 40, maybe 45% in these mm. certain times. You're probably not going to Fannie and Freddie. I mean, you could go get a HUD loan, but then you have to use certain you have to use certain type of like I think it's union like wage labor. So if, if people are going out and trying to build a, a multifamily building, you're probably going to look for a construction lender. Wouldn't hesitate to reach out to a mortgage broker, people like uh, Northmark or Arcadia, or just somebody who's really going to be able to maybe place that debt and bring a more competitive person to the table, unless you already have the contacts. And then of course, if you're doing something that or maybe you live in a larger city or you're doing something that's uh, you know not $100 million or something, you, you could go to your community lenders. And those are the people who, those are the relationship type of lenders and they want to see their community fo- move forward. They get to drive past it. They get to tell their wife about it when they're going to dinner. You know, like Those little things are the intangibles of loans that might be able to get that deal done. And I certainly would recommend using the community banks. That's That's frankly who I used almost exclusively for the first probably seven years of my career was people I could literally go build a relationship with, go golf with. And then, you know, that your balance sheet or your liquidity becomes lesser of a priority in the beginning of your career where they feel like, okay, we're taking a bet on this person who's going to get it done one way or the other. So that's how, that's how I would uh, approach it. Yeah. I appreciate that. Well, great. You know, this has been an interesting conversation. I really have enjoyed hearing about you know your journey and this vision that you had for a project like this you know early on and how it's come to fruition and for any of those that are listening that are thinking about getting into development now granted you know you had covid in the middle of this deal but we're talking you started this thing uh, you bought the first parcel late 2018 and you uh, mentioned that the project will be completed uh, August 2023 so uh, development is not for the faint of heart especially when you're getting into something where you're tearing down buildings and and buying multiple parcels and and rezoning everything and all that entailed if you were starting this whole process over again would you do this deal again i <laughs> yes and no Hindsight's twenty twenty, and what this deal taught me is invaluable. And the fact right. that I've learned it earlier is great. Uh, I mean, I I could talk for hours on the lessons that uh, you know I've, I'm going to be able to carry with me and the, the the type of situations I'll avoid going forward. I think what stuck with me the most was my mentor along the way. It, actually, uh, Ellie Perlman was who was who was my mentor. She's uh, Blue Lake Capital, great syndicator, yeah. and. You know, I was just like racking my head one day. I'm like, Ellie, I'm struggling with this thing. And she goes, Nick, don't you know we all want to grow up one day and become developers? You went the wrong way. And I was like, I get it. I, <laughs> I was like, aha. So for got thrown into the deep end early on. Exactly. So what I would recommend is if you want less pain, less gray hair, less stress in your life, I would go for value add multifamily or 
something that's already in existence with cash flow and uh, really build a strong base, a lot of liquidity, and build some really good partners around before you take a, a deep dive. But if you do and you need to, need to talk something through, feel free to reach out. I'm happy to, happy to help. <laughs> I love that. Well, look, this has been a great conversation. I appreciate you going into detail about this deal, the Ross building. Is that the branding that you'll uh, that you're using moving forward? Is that the name of the building? Yeah, the the, the building the is the Ross. Okay, cool. Our investment company is Mentis Capital. The Ross is an opportunity zone investment. We do have a little bit of little bit of room, not much, just a a little sliver. People have you know fifty hundred thousand dollars. There's a little bit of room left in that deal. It, that deal moves forward regardless of you know the, sure. our partners are moving it forward. But if it, we would replace some of our capital with with theirs, and then. Mentis Capital Partners is our real estate company, and we're throughout the Southeast. I'm currently working on deals in Atlanta, and um, those are more value add and a lot to a lot to come if we can find some more deals. But right now, these compressed cap rates are making it tough. Yeah, it's pretty lean right now. It is. Well, and is that the best way for our listeners to connect with you? Is uh, mentiscapital.com? Is that the best place? Yeah, probably email. I'm probably the most responsive. If you go to nick at mentiscp.com uh, or you can check out our website, I'd uh, be most responsive that way. Okay. And we'll have uh, a link to your email as well as your website in the show notes. Nick, it's been a privilege to have you on the show and to talk through your journey as well as uh, the Ross. Congratulations on seeing a dream from years ago to take shape and uh, excited to see what it holds over the next few years as you continue to, to watch that 14-story uh, and 7-story sky rise come out of the ground. Maybe we'll have you come back on once you complete that project and we can chat about it again. Sure. I'd love to. Thanks okay. for having me. Well, Nick, I appreciate it and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Sounds good. Hey, before you go, if you and I haven't connected yet, please head on over to canovocapital.com. You can join our investor network or download our free Passive Investor's Guide to Multifamily Syndications. Either way, I'd love to connect with you personally. Also, I just want to thank you for listening to the show and providing feedback and reviews. If you haven't already, please, please, please take a second and leave us a rating and written review. This helps us to be found by new listeners and helps us attract great guests in the future. Thanks again for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great day.